Earlier this morning, I started out our day of worship here in this room with a reminder of five lessons from Matthew chapters 24 and 25. Chapters 21 and 2 and 3 aren't any easier. If you were to think about the, the whole five chapters that are there, they are very sober warnings about the judgment of God. Love is a key issue. It's quite alarming. It's, it's new. It's, it's novel for those that were raised, and I was raised this way, to believe that the whole issue in the great day of judgment was whether I had accepted Jesus or not. And then you change to hear those that talk about, well, they believe the truth. Belief of the truth is no evidence of anything. Lots of men believe the truth that are going to go to hell. All the devils believe the truth, and they're going to hell. The issue is whether you have a changed life that shows that God has a work of grace in your life. Because Jesus said, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. That's the issue. And we're dealing with love being the greatest evidence of a child of God and a number of other factors as well. So judgment is coming. You saw that. And it is coming. I'm not going to give any repetition of 1 Corinthians 13 or 12 that leads into it. They're wonderful verses. I've reviewed them twice the last two Sundays. I hope that is sufficient. What is love? Of others, it is a selfless desire and help for their profit by Bible terms with an eye to heaven. It's the sacrificial effort that you make toward another person to prepare them to meet Jesus Christ. That is the highest measure of love. That is the real definition of love. It is not a sentimental feeling. It is not a fuzzy-wuzzy general category of chem chemistry with another person. It is a commitment, an action resulting from that commitment to help them be better before God and men. It's to help them find perfection for their lives. Thank you, Lord, for lifting our definition so much higher than the world's. Amen. Number one on that piece of paper is love is the greatest duty. Love of God and neighbor are not only commandments, they are the first and the greatest and the royal commandment. So love is the greatest duty is number one on your little handout. And we have covered that point. Number two, love is the greatest concept. Love is a simple word with a wide variety of meanings to different people, but only God can truly define it, and He has. Love is not chemistry, circumstances, or clicking, or any other childish, foolish term to describe relating to another person. If you're going to include terms like that, you might as well include puppy love, having a crush, being infatuated, or the pitter-patter of your little pitter-patter machine. Number three, love is the greatest definition. Definition. Before I leave number two, love, according to Romans 12.10, is kind affection, preferring others before yourself. Right. And I was intense about that last Lord's Day because the Lord was intense with me about it. This is a glorious concept, fully against the natural, popular, devilish love of self that the world promotes. It's to love others more than yourself. You already love yourself plenty enough. Right. That's why Jesus taught us to love our neighbors as ourselves, because we already know how to love and take care of someone, and that's ourselves. And if we would learn to do that toward others, that's the highest measure that a man can have. Number three was love is the greatest definition. Love is the sacrificial desire producing action to help another person realize God's best for their life. Love is jealous, 
but not in the way natural men think. Natural men think of jealousy is they're giving some of them to someone else and I want all of it for myself. You know, the Apostle Paul was jealous for the church at Corinth. He was jealous for their good. Not what he could get from the church at Corinth, but from what they could give God and to be preserved in their pure religion. As a chaste virgin that he had committed to Christ in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Number four, love is the greatest ideal. Ideal is a conception of something or a thing conceived in its highest perfection. And biblical love is the greatest ideal. What causes fighting and wars? And we went over war. Where where do wars come from? Whether it's in a household, a marriage, a church, or a nation. They come from the selfish lusts in men that are not replaced with love for men. James chapter 4 verse 1, James chapter 4 verse 5 teach us that. Number five, love is the greatest grace. We would not love at all were it not for the grace of God giving us a new nature and teaching us to love others. Love is the greatest grace. By nature, we are the sons and followers of the devil who was a murderer and was so from the beginning with Abel being his first victim. Number six, love is the greatest evidence. The certain assurance of eternal life to ourselves and to others is by our degree of brotherly love. It's not by presenting a psalm. It's not by being a pastor. Judas Iscariot was an awesome pastor. Peter and John never once for a second thought that it could possibly be Judas Iscariot. None of those things mean anything. They're not going to mean anything in the great day of judgment. Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name done many wonderful works. Then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Those things don't mean anything, and I want us to look at what the Bible actually teaches as the greatest evidence of eternal life, and it's brotherly love. Faith, which worketh by love. Galatians 5, 6. 2 Peter chapter 1 gives us eight things that we're supposed to have, adding to our faith, which is the first one, and ending with brotherly kindness and charity, both of which are aspects of love. That's the highest measure. It's the highest evidence of eternal life. 1 John 3, 1 John 4 stated over and over and over again, we know that we have passed from death into life because we love the brethren. Because that is not natural. And that is costly. It takes our time. It interrupts our schedule. It takes our emotion. It sucks the life out of our souls. It takes money out of our wallets in order to love another person the right way. And the Apostle Paul would say, I will very gladly spend and be spent, though the more I love you, the less I be loved. If you're not like that, you don't have much evidence of eternal life. That's the evidence. Number seven is love is the greatest measure. Love is the greatest measure. We approach perfection by God's measurement of us according to our degree of love for others. You know, Ephesus had so many good things said about them by the Apostle John in Revelation chapter 2 in the first several verses, but nevertheless I have somewhat against thee because you've left your first love. Love is the great measure. And many other things were said, and love is measurable. When I say love is the greatest measure, love is measurable. can rank this church very easily. can rank the families of this church very easily. Go down through our church directory. Just think biblically for a few minutes. For some of you, that will be hard because you're going to be low on that list and you're going to want to think otherwise. But think biblically. 
and just take the family names as to who loves to serve others, who actually gets out and does something for others, who actually gives to others. And that's not a tithe. That is not giving that is recognized by God at all when it comes to brotherly love. It's horrible. See, faith we can all hide. We can all say, yep, I believe. And we can say that we love, but it's love in word and deed that counts. I mean, it's, it's love in deed and truth that counts, not love in word, as 1 John 3 and 4 tell us again. Love is the greatest measure. That household of Stephanus, the whole New Testament knew about them. Gaius, Barnabas, Philemon, the whole New Testament knew about them. They were addicted to serving the saints. They were known for it. And the Apostle Paul named them. We need to do more naming in this church on both ends. Expect it. Because it's coming. I'm sick and tired of people pretending they're Christians and warming foam rubber and not living the life that the New Testament gives us for what a Christian should be doing. Romans 16, 1 through 16 has 16 whole verses, name after name after name after name. While they were still living, they were known by the other New Testament churches as being servants of the churches, having churches in their houses, taking care of ministers. On and on it went in those 16 verses. Oh, and brethren, you know, when I, when I write you a preparatory email and ask you a bunch of snotty little questions after each of the website emails that I shared with you, that's nothing. Wait till you meet the Lord Jesus Christ. He does not care one bit about your prayer habits. He does not care one bit about any of anything that you do in your life when it doesn't measure up to the godliness of the Bible. Remember, it's not Lord, Lord. That isn't going to mean anything to him. It doesn't matter how well you sing when you meet him. What's going to count is that you've done the will of my Father which is in heaven. Right. We need to have changed lives because that's what the Bible teaches. I'm his ambassador. I represent him and I love him. And I will not compromise his word to you. And I'm warning you about what it's going to be like in that great day for all of us. Right. It can be a wonderful day of confidence meeting him. And it can be a terrible day of shame, even if we're his children if we have not lived for him here on earth. Number eight, love is the greatest means. We have a lot of ground to cover today, and yet limited time. Number eight, love is the greatest means. M-E-A-N-S. We may accomplish more good for God's glory and Christ's kingdom with love than anything else. Jesus taught his apostles that all men shall know that ye are my disciples by your doctrine, your beautiful church building. Your programs for the youth, your Awana program, your love for one another. Right. Your love for one another. John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. Look at Ephesians chapter 4 with me. Ephesians chapter 4, where ministerial life and roles are first described, and then church roles toward each other are described. Ephesians chapter 4, the passage really begins at verse 7, when it describes the gifts of the ministry given by Jesus Christ when he ascended up into heaven, and that proceeds all the way down through verse 14, and what the ministers are supposed to do, but then at verses 15 and 16 of Ephesians 4, we have your role. 
Ephesians 4, love is the greatest means. This is how a church is great in the sight of the Lord. And we want to have the greatest church. Amen. He deserves it. Yes. We don't want it for us. We're not even going to tell people who we are. People that find our website don't know who we are. They write and ask, who are you? Who wrote these commentaries? Who wrote these documents? Who preaches those sermons? Because we don't tell them. They don't need to know. That's not what it's, what's important. What's important is the content. And so here is what holds a church together and makes it great. And we want to be great. Ephesians 4.15, but speaking the truth in love. But speaking the truth in love. Speaking the truth is not enough to build a church. It's speaking the truth in love. May grow up into him in all things. Yes, grow up into him in all things as a church, which is the head, even Christ, from whom our head, the Lord Jesus Christ, the head of this church, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. In love, in love, in love, in love. Ephesians 4, 15 and 16. Every part, every joint compacted together. The Lord's put them together. together. He's put us together. Every one of us doing our part to make this a truth-loving but loving church. And we can edify ourselves and build ourselves up to what we should be with Jesus Christ as our head. The full measure of the stature of Jesus Christ. My little short stature has a bunch of parts. But it's my head and it's my spirit that controls every part. I've got lots of parts. I can move them all at once. Can't play the piano very well. But we can run and we can lift and we can do things and we can type. Yes, I can type at 100 words a minute, corrected. But uh, that's an accomplishment. But we want to have that accomplishment for the Lord, who's the head of this church, and the Holy Spirit that's the spirit inside the church, so that the passion of Christ comes through us, which is the Holy Spirit, and all parts working together. Is this church capable of 100 words a minute, corrected? Amen. Or are we... No, backspace. What kind of a church are we? Lord, help us. These verses are wonderful. Love is the greatest means. Love is the bond of perfectness, according to the next Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. This edifying of itself and increasing of the body, increasing the body is not numerical here. Increasing the body here is in quality, and in following the truth, obeying the truth, and building each other up. These are wonderful verses. We want to grow up into him in all things. We want to be joined together. We want to be compacted. We want to have effectual work by every one of you, making increase of this body under the edifying of itself. We don't get to build a magnificent temple or a magnificent, exceeding magnificent palace to the Lord like David and Solomon did, but we can do it here. And I have tried to show you from the Bible that this temple, this house of the Lord is greater than theirs anyway. Can you see the golden candlestick? Can you see it? With the eyes of faith, we ought to know that this church is a golden candlestick and Jesus is walking around it. 
And maybe there's a star in his right hand. Let us make this church what it should be. Love is the greatest means. And I hope that you can see in verse 15, it starts out with in love, and verse 16 ends with edifying of itself in love. This is how we bind the living stones that make up a New Testament church together. All things must be done in charity, as I sent you yesterday from 1 Corinthians chapter 16. The beautiful unity of a local church is by forbearing one another in love. In this same chapter, just backing up to the first three verses, look at this. First three verses of Ephesians 4. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. What is our vocation? The sons of God. That we walk worthy of that. Verse 2. With all lowliness and meekness about ourselves. With long-suffering, forbearing one another in love. With long-suffering toward whom? Toward them. Toward others. Forbearing one another in love. Putting up with and overlooking and not worrying about them offending us. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. To keep a body fitly tuned, your spirit has to be of one mind towards your body. And we need to be that as a church. And we can be that as a church. And we do it with all lowliness of mind about ourselves and putting others up in honor, preferring others over ourselves. Right. Romans 12, 10, Philippians 2, 1 through 4. It's what makes a church work well. Lord, help us to do this. And we need to endeavor to do this. This will not come naturally. This is not instinctive to us. It's something that we must endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit so that there's no schism in this body. But the Holy Spirit is unfettered to serve in all of us and build us up together and use our various gifts toward one another to multiply the church. The Bible says repeatedly that love covers a multitude of sins and there's going to be a multitude of sins in the very best of churches. And these are sins particularly between members. Sins of offense, sins of irritation, disappointment, frustration, you know, ding car doors in the parking lot and stuff like that. Sins against each other. And we're to overlook it. We're just to overlook them. Love covers sins by overlooking them and ignoring them. See, glorious people never get upset about little things. Some of you were raised in families that did not have any virtue or nobility at all. And they fought about everything. No, Christians don't do that. Nice. Glorious men overlook offenses. Proverbs 19.11 The discretion of a man deferreth his anger. Right. It puts his, I'm not going to get angry. I'm not going to get angry. Some of you fly off because that's the way you were trained and you think that's cool. You think it's instinctive. You're a psychopath. And I'll be dealing with that soon enough. We're all psychopaths. Actually, if you understand the definition of the word... But you that fly off the handle, get upset, want to text somebody, send them an email, nasty email, you're full of the devil. You're a psychopath. The discretion of a man deferreth his anger. I'm not going to get angry. And it is his glory to pass over a transgression. How do you pass over a transgression? You ignore it. I don't care. Because if we have a truly low mind about ourselves, it doesn't matter what someone else does to us because they're more important and we ought to be their doormat. And if we would get that mentality, we'd save ourselves a lot of grief and we could help build up the church. Lord, help us to learn those things. Love covers a multitude of sins by overlooking them. Love covers a multitude of sins by correcting them. James chapter 5, if we see a brother departing from the truth and we convert him and bring him back into the way of righteousness, we've saved a soul from death and we've hide a multitude of sins. Love covers many sins by seeking reconciliation from two directions. 
Matthew chapter 5 says, if you think that you may have offended your brother, then leave your gift, drop it down to the floor right now. Don't write that check. Go and be reconciled to your brother. Matthew 5, 21 through 26. It's a violation of the sixth commandment to be angry with a brother without a cause. A justified cause from heaven, not your cause. Then Matthew 18 says, if your brother has offended you, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. So if a church... These guys over here aren't very glorious. If you've got to use Matthew 18, you're pitiful. Right. You're just a weak, weak Christian. That you've got to go use Matthew 18 to tell somebody that they've offended you. Because if you're a real Christian, you just ignore it and blow it off. You know what the Apostle Paul says in interpreting that in 1 Corinthians chapter 6? when they were, The Corinthian church was taking each other to small claims courts in their church about the smallest of matters. The Apostle Paul starts off 1 Corinthians 6 by saying, wait a minute, folks, we're going to judge angels shortly. Why can't you figure out these little matters that, that occur between each of you? In fact, why don't I just forget that point and tell you, suffer being defrauded. Right. It's better to be defrauded than to go fight your brother in small claims court, even if it's a small claims court of the church. Right. Suffer yourself to be defrauded. Oh, it's beautiful. Love covers a multitude of sins. So if you think you might have offended someone, go get reconciled with your brother. And if you don't have any Christian character, then go ahead and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. But if he repents, repent, brethren. It's beautiful. Love is the greatest means. A church has lions and lambs, comely and uncomely, but love will avoid schisms. And I hope you read that last night in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Number nine, love is the greatest source. Now, number eight and number nine are different. Number eight was means. Number nine is source. S-O-U-R-C-E. Number eight, we may accomplish more good for God's glory in Christ's kingdom with love than anything else. But number nine, love is the greatest source. We can get more benefits and live more peacefully and prosperously by love than any other means. Right. It's toward us. Love is the greatest means for the glory of God and the building up of His church. Love is the greatest source for blessings in your life. You win. Love is win-win. Love is win-win-win if we practice it. Active brotherly love is the means to loving life and seeing good days from the Lord. Look at 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. Do you want to have a good life? Learn to love the brethren. Learn to love the Bible way. It will bless your life and God will bless you for it. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. Finally, in the middle of his letter. Finally, be ye all of one mind, having compassion one of another. This is brotherly love. Finally, be ye all of one mind, that's unified in peace, having compassion of another, one of another, love as brethren, be pitiful, be courteous, not rendering evil for evil. Let someone offend you. Show them good in return. Or railing for railing. They say something nasty. I'm going to say something nasty. I'm... Where do you come from? That is from hell. Right. The righteous never do it. Some of you grew up in homes where they always did it. I thank God for my parents. I never 
had to hear any of that junk. And because you did grow up that way, that is no excuse whatsoever for you ever repeating it. Right. You, of all people, ought to know how terrible it is to live in such a hellhole and show a different lifestyle. Amen. And some of you have been saved out of hellholes like that, and you don't allow it in your homes, and I praise and commend you for that. Look at these wonderful words. 1 Peter 3, 8, Finally, be all of one mind, having compassion one of another. Love as brethren. Be pitiful. Be courteous. Whoa, this is how a church gets along. Not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrary wise blessing. If someone rails you, bless them in return. Knowing that ye, are, that ye are thereunto called, that ye should inherit a blessing. For he that will love life. Do you want to love life? And see good days. Let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no guile. Do you want to have a good life? It's not going to the doctor. The doctor will not help you have a good life. Those of you that go to the doctor the most don't have good lives. If you want to have a good life, then you will learn to shut your mouth and turn your keyboard off, whether it's this big or it's this big. He that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue or his fingertips from evil and his lips and his fingers that they speak no guile. Let him eschew evil, hate, and oppose evil and do good. Let him seek peace and ensue it. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous and his ears are open unto their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. And what evil is under consideration in this text? Not getting along with others. Thank you, Lord. Love is the greatest source. Look at Psalm 41. There's so many verses on these points. This outline is now 11, uh, 10 or 11 pages of single space material because the Bible is filled with how we should get along with each other, especially in his church, in his family, in his kingdom. He wants us to do good to all men, but especially they that are of the household of faith. Amen. Psalm 41, verse 1, blessed is he that considereth the poor. The Lord will deliver him in time of trouble. That is good news. Amen. That is a good reward. Blessed is he that considereth the poor. The Lord will deliver him in time of trouble. The Lord will preserve him and keep him alive. And he shall be blessed upon the earth. And thou wilt not deliver him under the will of his enemies. The Lord will strengthen him upon the bed of languishing. Thou wilt make all his bed in his sickness. That is a fantastic three verses. And how do you get that? Considering the poor. Everyone in our church that needs help, help them. And if anyone is thinking in here, I need the help, why aren't you helping me? You're the last one we're going to help. Because you've just proved by that thought that you don't deserve any help. Because you're not a Christian. A Christian only thinks in one direction, helping others. The widow woman had two mites. If there was ever a person in the New Testament that needed help, it was the widow woman. She gave her two mites to the Lord. That's a Christian. That was, she was noted by the Lord Jesus Christ and put in the Word of God for us. This is a wonderful passage. There's many more like them. Love is the greatest source of blessing upon a man's life. Marital love, leading about a sister, is God's gift, and the Bible speaks of it in the highest and loftiest of terms. There's eight chapters called the Song of Solomon about a husband and a wife loving each other. It's love of two people toward each other, looking out for their best interests 
and enjoying the pleasure together. Two are better than one, Ecclesiastes tells us, and gives us four reasons why that is true. If the Bible is true and we know it is, then giving has more blessing than getting. So if you learn to love by giving instead of getting, you're going to benefit from it. Because love is the greatest source. Love always thinks the best, believes the best, and hopes the best about other people to enjoy a peaceful and quiet life. Some of you grew up in homes where it wasn't peaceful and quiet because no one knew anything about love in that home. But we can all have these homes. Love always thinks the best, believes the thinketh no evil. I'm, I'm, I'm referring to 1 Corinthians 13. There's no better sentence in any language defining love than 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7. Thinketh no evil, believeth all things, hopeth all things. That's how you enjoy a peaceful and quiet life because you don't think anything negative about anybody else until they absolutely prove it to you. Then you get rid of them if they don't want to repent. Cast out the scorner and strife will go out. Peace will come in. Love destroys the masters and monsters of bitterness, envy, revenge, and other soul-plaguing sins. The man that's got any bitterness in his heart, the woman that's got any bitterness in her heart, envy, revenge, and other soul-plaguing sins, in their bed they're being chased by this monster, this master of their souls. But we get rid of it because we love. We, don't, we believe all things and hope all things. An environment of love is able to make meager fare superior to great riches. Look at Proverbs 15. Love wins on every side. I can't say win too many times or it's going to sound ridiculous, but love wins, wins, wins. Proverbs 15 and verse 17. Love. Better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a stalled ox and hatred therewith. A stalled ox. Why has it been stalled? So it can't. That's the right answer. To get fat. Can't move around and it's got feed just shoved down its throat because it's in a stall. It's the fatted calf. It's the stalled ox. Fatten up that ribeye so it's marble with a little extra fat before we carve it up. Put on a grill and carve it up. Proverbs 15, 17 says that if you've got a stalled ox or filet mignon on your plate with its accoutrements and you've got hatred there at the table, what kind of a meal is that? It's a miserable meal. Better is a dinner of herbs where love is. You know how much I hate salads. But here, all you've got is a salad. Folks, I like salads. But they can't be compared to a steak. And do you know who's making the comparison right now? Do you trust your Bible? Who's making the comparison? I don't want to vary from him on anything. If he says that a dinner of herbs versus a stalled ox, do you know what he's saying? This is a garbage meal. This is a great meal. But if you've got love, the garbage meal is nice. But if you've got hatred, the great meal is not nice. That's what he's saying. I hope you all understand that. That's like people that go to Daniel chapter 1 and actually think that there's health virtues in eating beans and peas. They actually think that eating pulse and drinking water will make them, will turn them into mental geniuses like Daniel. They think there's miracle producing effects in beans and peas. Do you know why beans and peas were picked? Because they're not good food. That's right. Amen. The other, the other students in the graduate school of Nebuchadnezzar were eating the good food and drinking the good wine. Daniel wanted to make a point. 
try me for 10 days on prison fare and I'll be better than your well-fed boys. There isn't a nutrition lesson in Daniel 1. There's a spiritual lesson in Daniel 1. Okay, now let's back up. I, too, like chili with some beans in it. I, too, can enjoy peas once in a while if they're hidden in a salad with other good things like cheddar cheese and lots of ranch dressing. Don't get distracted with nutrition. Embrace what it says in this verse and, and, and seeing it as some of the supporting evidence for love is the greatest source for a more peaceful and prosperous life than other means. It's love. You don't have to make a lot of money to have great meals. You need to have a lot of love to have great meals. Isn't that wonderful? Is popcorn a bean or a pea? Is popcorn a lentil? I like popcorn. Just trying to comfort some of you vegetarians. Uh, A salad is what cattle eat. And we like what cattle eat. But then we get 100 pounds of salad and one pound of steak. I think it's more efficient. Enough on nutrition. I love the Word of God with verses like this. When you've got Solomon, who had tried everything, he had had stalled oxen many times, but he knew that if there was love at the table, that was more important. So love is the greatest source. Look at 17.1. Right there, it's open. Your Bible is open. Chapter 17, verse 1. Better is a dry morsel and quietness therewith than a house full of sacrifices with strife. Do you understand that verse completely? There's a commentary somewhere on our website for it. A dry morsel. You've got some saltines, but you've got a quiet family. It's, it's better than a house full of sacrifices. What does that mean? You've been down to the tabernacle or the temple, and you've offered some oxen, you've offered some sheep, and you've brought your portions back to eat the best of the meat. The best of your flock was taken to God, and you've brought back the parts that you're allowed to eat, and your house is full of them. You've got all this meat for this great meal. A dry morsel is better if there's quietness there. Because if you have all that meat, but you've got strife, you've got fighting, you've got contention, in the, you've got tension and contention, it's all ruined. This is the Word of God. Love is the greatest source. Number 10, love is the greatest challenge. Challenge. Number 10, love is the greatest challenge. We must work harder against our sin nature to learn to love and actually love than anything else. Love is the greatest challenge. By nature, we live in malice and envy. We're hateful and hating one another. The Bible tells us that. Paul admitted that about himself and Titus. Love is a choice and work. You must choose to do something contrary to your natural instincts. That's hard. The old man, which every Christian has in him, is entirely selfish and loves to fight. Love is commanded. The commands are repeated because it takes daily work to practice real love. Love, like many of God's commandments, is done without regard to feeling or sentiment. It's done by choice of faith. Faith, which worketh by love. Galatians 5, 6. Circumcision doesn't matter to God. Uncircumcision doesn't matter to God. But this does matter to God. Faith, you believe in me? Then show me the work of love in your life. Faith, which worketh by love. Love is action. It's not a thought. It's not a word. It's different than other things. 
Most Christians justify themselves as being loving by their thoughts, their words, or their lack of murder of someone. But there's more to it than that. Love is action. Many Christians justify themselves by assembling and praying for others. That's vanity. You've got to do something for them. It's got to be sacrificial. It's got to be costly. It's got to be unnatural. And it's got to be unpleasant in what you do to someone else. It's got to be giving. I will spend and be spent. It's a labor of love to go and love the brethren. Love involves a cost. Giving up your things for the benefit of another. Or it is simply not love. Therefore, if you are not sacrificing your things in order to love, then you are a hateful fraud. Because love sacrifices time, energy, emotion, structure, schedule, money, food, ambition. It sacrifices things. It sacrifices family. It sacrifices time. There isn't as much time to play checkers. Love involves a cost, giving up your things for the benefit of another, or it is simply not love. Therefore, if you are not sacrificing your things in order to love, then you're a hateful fraud. I just want that to sink in. True love is for the uncomely. Look at Luke 14. True love is for the uncomely. It's not for your friends. You can't satisfy any of Christ's measurement of love by loving your friends. Unless, of course, the uncomely are your friends because you made them your friends. And how did you make them your friends? Be not high-minded, but condescend to men of low estate. Romans chapter 12 tells you how to do it. Condescend, and that's not a bad word in that particular context. Condescend to men of low estate. Luke 14, you've heard this before from me. I've put it in updates. I've tried to remind you about this. This is how we give more abundant honor to the uncomely members of a body. You have uncomely members. You have parts of your physical body that are ugly. You have covered them up with clothes, and we thank you. That's what it means. Oh, yeah. Some of you have toes that are unbelievable. I don't know how you walk. They're so twisted and so unsightly and so unshapely, but I thank you that you have put a nice piece of wool over them first and then a nice piece of leather over the wool so that we cannot see them. Thank you. You provide, but you didn't do that for your ears. There's no wool over your ears and there's no leather over your wool over your ears. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 12. There's a long lesson drawn by the Apostle Paul. We give more abundant honor to those things that are lacking in honor. And so in a church, we ought to look out for the lower members and do things for them, the weaker members, and do things for them. That does not mean we do it for the unruly members. Weak is not unruly. Weak is not rebellious. Weak is not stubborn. Weak is lower income, lower intelligence, lower ability when they are making every effort they can to do what is right. When they don't want to make every effort to do what is right, ignore them. Warn them. Rebuke them. Correct them. Help them find another church in Greenville County. 
Luke 14, there is a difference, and I hope you understood. We'll get to it. We may. Luke 14, 12, Jesus speaking. Then said he also to him that bade him, When thou makest a dinner or a supper, call not thy friends, nor thy brethren, neither thy kinsmen, nor thy rich neighbors, lest they also bid thee again, and a recompense be made thee. Do you know that I've actually had church members come to me and say, over the past two years I've had seven people over to my home, and none of them have invited me back. Why should they? They're giving you the opportunity to fulfill Luke 14, 12 through 14. You should thank them. Send them a thank you card. Thank you for not having me over to your house so that I can fulfill Luke 14, 12 through 14. Are you reading it with me? I'm not making this up. If somebody is able to invite you back, that means that it becomes tit for tat. I invite you over. Oh, it's your turn to take the tab this time. Okay, I'll take the tab this time. And you'll get the tab next time, right? That isn't anything that fits. That isn't charity. Luke 14, 12. I love the Lord Jesus Christ. This is doctrine. This is Jesus preaching doctrine about brotherly love. Verse 13. But when thou makest a feast, call the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and thou shalt be blessed, for they cannot recompense thee. For thou shalt be recompensed at the resurrection of the just. And here we go again. When we stand before Jesus Christ as judge, what is going to be recompensed? Our charity and brotherly love. Not our doctrine, not inviting Jesus into our heart, not our prayer habits, not our Bible reading habits, but our brotherly love of charity, of having a feast and inviting people in. No, I've got the tab, but you got the tab last time. No, I've got it again this time. It's my tab. You're not going to rob me of a blessing, are you? That's the attitude. Do you know why you want to go out and work hard? Do you know why you want a transferable skill? So that you can make enough money so that you can do just what I said. This is doctrine. This is the kind of doctrine I like. You know, we have enough of our five phases, seven proofs and all this and all that and so on. We try to dot our I's and cross our T's, but this is what we want because this is what we're going to be held accountable for. And after all, love is the greatest challenge. There's no challenge at all in dotting your I's and crossing your T's. The devils do it very well. As soon as they saw Jesus, they did not need an introduction to him, nor did they need to read an essay about the Son of God. They simply cried out, falling down on their faces, We know thee who thou art, the Son of God. If you read Matthew 8 and 9 last night, you ran into that? We know thee who thou art, thou art the Son of God. Art thou come to torment us before the time? They know doctrine. They know true sonship. They know prophecy. They know God's sovereignty. They know a lot, don't they? But they're devils, and they're on their way to hell. This is, you know, if somebody bids you back, if somebody invites you back and takes the tab, then that's a recompense is being made to you on earth. And you don't want a recompense on earth. You want your recompense in heaven. I, yep. I'm, I'm telling you the secrets of God's word. Is there anyone left in this church that thinks someone else picking up the tab is a good meal? I do not understand that. 
I do not understand that. Why would you want someone else to pick up the tab? They're more important than you are, and you're making them pay for you? You're going to give them the eternal blessing? And you're going to take an earthly blessing because there's no eternity for you? Pastor, do you ever let them pay? Not very often. And, it's, and I'm not going to go down without a fight. And I'm nobody. I'm the most selfish person in here. But for whatever little bit of love God has been able to extract out of me by his grace. True love is for the uncomely. We were talking about the body parts. A long time ago, the sermon preached was, why wear pretty shoes? Because under those pretty shoes that women wear and those fancy leather shoes that men wear are some pretty ugly feet. And if we, if we put the effort into each member of the church that we put into the, covering up the members of our body, it can be a beautiful church. Beautiful church. Loving your family is no evidence of anything. The pagans already do it better than you do it. 1 Timothy 5.8 If any man provide not for his own, he hath denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. Because the infidels know how to do that. Christians love the ugly, even love their enemies. And those that cannot or will not return the kindness. That's why Paul said, I will very gladly spend and be spent for you, though the more abundantly I love you, the less I be loved. But he said, in light of that, I will very gladly spend and be spent for you. Though the more abundantly I love you, the less I be loved. Notice how he put that together in his attitude and reaction to it. What is pure religion in the Bible? To visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction. Americans are obsessed about something they call freedom. It's far overstated and quite worthless in many respects. Religious freedom is nice. The Americans are obsessed about it. They really can't define it. They love to have Mel Gibson shouting it out from some place where he's about to lose his head. But true love flushes freedom. True love flushes freedom. What's the freedom chapter of the Bible? Romans chapter 14. And what is Romans 14 there for but to teach us that our freedom is not important. It's others' freedom to do as they would want to do in a matter of liberty, and we sacrifice our own, and we do it out of charity toward our brother, lest we put a stumbling block in his path or discourage him or cause him to sin against his conscience. It's a fabulous chapter, and there's charity in the middle of it, but when you read the whole thing, you say this whole chapter is about charity when it comes to Christian liberty. It's called liberty in the Bible because God has not made any rules about what you want to do. 
and he's allowed others their liberty. Marriage is an example of the great, love is the greatest challenge. Marriage is an example. Most spouses think they have freedom to do what they want in a marriage. Oh, no, you do not whatsoever. You do not have freedom in your marriage. You are bound by the laws of God to treat your spouse the way the Bible says. You married folks are not free at all. You are bound in thought, word, and deed to your spouse by the word of God and by your promises based on the word of God when you married that spouse or when you remarried that spouse. You cannot have your marriage as you want it, but as God wants it and your husband or your wife wants it. Husbands must love without bitterness, Colossians 3.19. You don't have a right to bitterness. They must be ravished by her love, Proverbs 5.19. Wives must obey, submit, make his desire her own, love him and reverence him as her Lord. Those are commandments. And marital love is a challenge because all love is a challenge because it's something contrary to our nature. But because we said, I do, that committed us for the rest of our lives to the will will and needs of our spouse, depending on whether you're a husband or a wife. And when we're baptized, and then when we join a church, we make a commitment that we're going to live by the Bible rules toward that congregation. Hospitality, which is part of charity, is required of Christians, but it must be without begrudging. 1 Peter 4.9, showing hospitality without begrudging. Why would you ever begrudge it? It's It's a blast to show it. It's a blast to pick up the tab. Reciprocity, either hope or fact, is irrelevant and destructive of charity. You're not waiting for someone to reciprocate towards you. There's no contentment in love. We want to keep growing in it. So that's why it's love is the greatest challenge. Though we reach a certain place as a church, we reach a certain place as a family or an individual, we have to press on and do more because the apostle told us to. And we should want to. If it's the greatest of all these different aspects, then we should want to grow in it. If you love others, then you will humbly and soberly realize the changes you must make to do it. You can't let down your example. Moods prove selfish hatred of others. It's the opposite of love. Moods are the opposite of love. you got to keep your priorities right, not get off track with publishing or testifying instead. God doesn't want you writing anything if you're not loving in every way that you should first. You must consider others or you will overlook their circumstances, their needs, and their preferences. So you've got to think about other people. You will give generously generously and liberally. True love has few limits. And God already outgave you no matter what you give. You will happily be last in conversation, consideration, public recognition, or other measures. You will happily be last in the church. You will happily forgive others' offenses, forget them, and press forward with friendliness toward those very perpetrators. You will defer anger and gloriously pass over their offenses against you. You will be a peacemaker and expert at reconciliation in both directions pertaining to offenses. You will exalt your responsibilities toward others far over any perceived rights with others. You will reject any habits, training, tradition, family upbringing that is contrary to the Bible. You will make each person's life comfortable, peaceful, and pleasant, not your family or self first. You will never seek the attention of others by any means, but rather look to give it to others. You will happily sacrifice preferences, opinions, time, schedule, space, money, emotions for other people. You will correct errors to help. But only meekly will you do it, and only rarely will you do it, because you'll overlook so many things when they're against you. 
you will learn that compromise is love when it comes to relationships and Christian liberties. You will err on the side of mercy from God and from yourself whenever possible with another person. You'll err on the side of mercy. If I'm going to err, I'm going to err on the side of mercy. Anybody that's even questioning that, and you're trying to raise up the word principle, it ain't principle, it's pride. You don't know anything about principle, you wouldn't even ask the question. Because you would know that mercy is greater than principle. I will have mercy and not sacrifice. That is greater than principle. That's precepts. That's God's orders. Mercy is greater than God's orders. These few ideas of love given you are very contrary to the old man and flesh that's inside you. You love to envy and fight, as Paul admitted about himself, which you should also admit about yourself. You're selfish by nature and want yourself to come out on top in any comparison with others. By nature. You begrudge the abilities, successes, and good character and conduct of others as threats to you. You should rejoice in them and praise them and commend them, promote them and honor them. You enjoy the failures of others because they justify your self-righteousness and criticisms. So you rejoice when someone fails. 1 Corinthians 13 tells us that we should never rejoice in that, but rejoice in the truth and when they're doing what is right and succeeding. You will protect yourself if anyone or anything happens to put you in less than the best light. Why do you do that? You're not important. We all know that you're a scumbag. Why are you trying to deceive us? You will protect yourself if anyone or anything happens to you to put you in, in less than the best light. You will stop loving to protect yourself if anyone has hurt you or does not return your love. Totally unlike the Apostle Paul, the Lord Jesus Christ, and God our Father in heaven. You will stop loving to protect yourself. That is amazing wisdom. Could you share that with the church sometime? Do you think Solomon would endorse it? You will stop loving to protect yourself because someone has hurt your little feelings. Why don't you teach them how to love? The Bible says to overcome their evil with your good. Bury them in love. Send them a tsunami of love. Doesn't the Bible say to pray for your enemies and do good to them which despitefully use you and persecute you? Doesn't it tell us all these things? Didn't the Lord do that to us? Didn't he reconcile us to himself through Jesus Christ when we were his enemies? You expect everyone should be praying for your little needs, though you seldom pray for others. Amazing. You will excuse your lack of love by overstating other duties, attendance, prayer, truth, doctrine. So you'll excuse your love. You'll excuse your lack of love by assuming and expecting others in the church to do it towards you. That isn't love. That is selfish greed. Give it to others. You would rather be first in line and can think of good reasons why, though purely selfish. Why don't you want to be last in line? You think your children special and inherently superior to others' children because they have your last name? Are you kidding me? Why don't you have some character so your children have some character so that we might see something good come out of your last name? We would like to see some character and conduct that matches up with the Bible, and attendance isn't one of them. You think lightly about either attending every service and or fulfilling all duties. 
when you are present. There's things to do as soon as I say amen to this assembly. There's all these brothers around you, sisters around you. You can love as God requires, brethren, because God has given his spirit of love to us. God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of a sound mind of love and of power. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.7, but the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace. That's the same chapter that says, faith which worketh by love is what pleases God. God can put the earnest care for others in your heart like he did Titus for the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Pray for greater love. Faith comes by hearing, but the disciples prayed for faith anyway. Love comes by the grace of God in our lives, and we can pray for more love. And we should and we will when we pray in our second assembly. While you pray for love, make every effort to practice love yourself. God will enable you. God, by His Spirit and through Christ, has given you the ability to do everything. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. We can, be, we can have the lowliness of mind. We can be selfless like Paul. We can serve others. We can always want the tab. We can work hard so that we can pay the tab. And if we can't pay the tab, we're not going to be so proud that we can't invite somebody over for popcorn. Put fake butter on it if you can't afford the real stuff. They have powdered fake butter. It's probably more expensive than the real stuff. Hot dog. I don't care what it is. It doesn't matter. It can be a dry morsel as long as there's love. Lord, help us to do these things. That's through number 10. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word and may his spirit stir up our hearts and our minds that we will embrace brotherly love and that we will understand it and we will see the full comprehensive presentation that the Lord has given us in the pages of scripture and do it. Please stand with me.